You are listening to Pastor Greg Voorhees, recorded at Shenandoah Valley Baptist Church, Sunday, January 22nd, 2023. For more information about SVBC, you can visit their website, svbcfamily.com, or find them on all things social, at svbcfamily. God really loves us. Not a question in my mind. If, if you've read the Gospels, there shouldn't be a question in your mind of God really loves you. Actually, the whole Bible, the whole Bible screams to the fact that God really loves you. You know, I'm getting excited too. Is, you know, I, I was praying, I was praying a week or two ago, and I really felt God impressing on me to talk about this for half a second. And I, for some reason, just keep forgetting it. The, you know, I've said from the beginning that, that, you know, my intention would be to move towards contemporary worship. What you're seeing now on these screens, that's pretty much what I was talking about. Even though we've moved the instruments up here and we're going to be going to live worship in the next several weeks, when you say contemporary worship, that puts some, sometimes some crazy pictures in people's minds. We're not going to be adding flashing lights or smoke machines or, or, or any of these other things. This is, this is it. You, you know, we've changed. We've put some color up here in the lights. That's, that's about as wild and crazy as we're getting. The, the, and the music that you're hearing, it's, it's the same stuff you're going to be hearing. The only difference is it's going to be led by people and not screens. So I don't want anybody to get worried that, you know, you know, you know Pastor Greg, he's going to go off his nut and we're going to be you know, dancing and all these things. If you want to, trust me, I don't see a thing wrong with it. Do it, but but that's not what I'm. I, I just I want to try to alleviate. It must be a, a burden on someone's heart for that. God make it a burden on my heart to share that. This sermon is the Bible reliable. This is kind of the. I didn't mean for two weeks ago. I, I discussed. We, we I did a sermon called "Sharpen Your Sword." We spoke very kind of extensively about hermeneutics, the art. And, and the science of interpreting Scripture. You know, why did we do that? You know, A, was more of a lesson and not so much a sermon because my voice was kind of shaky. But B, all of these tools that we discussed in, this, in, in this, that sermon was very important. However, this is kind of the, the second half of that. I didn't realize there was going to be a second half of that, but this is the second half of that. Now that we know we have more tools in our toolbox you know, to study the Bible and, and, and look at it and, and, and learn from it and see what it has to say and the context and all these things, there's still this blaring question, why would we do that if it's not reliable? You, you know, is the Bible reliable? Can we, can we trust in it? So I thought this was going to be a relatively short thing, and I, I'm not going to extend this out beyond this week, but I realized I had to compress a lot of what I wanted to talk to in, in the one, because we could do an entire lesson series on nothing but the reliability of the Bible. Why it's reliable, historical facts, archaeological findings. You, you, you know, this could be a very extensive thing if we wanted to tackle that, you know, more in a, in a teaching type way and if you wanted to do that. But I wanted to look at some very important things in the Bible to kind of point to its reliability. And I left my pointer down here. I need a babysitter sometimes, I'm, I think. I am so sorry. So the first thing that we want to talk about is the next screen. <laughs> Actually, I say David might have to help me out there. Why is the question of the reliability of the Bible even important? Have you ever thought about it? You, you know, have you just we just have you just said blindly, you know, well, it's the Bible. It's true, because it's the Bible. You know, is it okay to question its reliability? Is it okay to, because I'm going to tell you what, most of us, early in our faith, until we really dig into it and really find out and, and really do a lot of research and a lot of studying in it, it's natural for you to question the reliability of the Bible. How do we get around this? Why is it important, though? The infallibility and the inerrancy of Scripture depends on the reliability of the Bible. What do I mean by that? The infallibility 
is it right? Is it right? So its reliability is, is directly connected to the question, is it right? It's inerrancy. What does that mean? Inerrancy, it doesn't, it, it doesn't conflict itself. There, there's, it's inerrant. It doesn't, even though we might see, we're going to talk about things where sometimes an account of something might be slightly different, there's a reason for that. But on doctrinal and dogmatic issues, is there any contradiction in the Bible? If anybody says there is, I would like to have that discussion with you because it doesn't. I would be more than happy to sit down with anybody that says it, it, it conflicts. It, it's, it's saying this thing, one place, nothing. It doesn't do it. You, you know, when you start looking at context, when you start looking at who he's talking to or the author's talking to and putting it into a systematic theological framework, the Bible does not contradict itself. Why is, it, why is this question of reliability important? We make decisions with eternal consequences based on its reliability. Our decision to follow Christ, to get to heaven, and to have a relationship with the Father, it's, it's important to understand that the Bible's reliable for us to understand it is important to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. He's not just some guy in history. He is Messiah. He is the Son of God. He was 100 is. He is 100% man, 100% God. We need to understand that. It's important for us to understand that. So the, the reliability of the Bible is important in this way. Why is it important, too? For us to understand the true character of God, we have to believe in the reliability of the Bible. What's the difference between how we look at God and how other religions look at God? You know, what makes the Bible reliable and the Koran not reliable? You know, so it's, it's, it's one of these things that's important for us to understand that the Bible is absolutely reliable because it's the difference between whether or not we're right or we're wrong. It's the difference between maybe us making a wrong decision and, and, and being separated from God for eternity. So it is important for us to understand that the Bible is true and it's reliable. What is truth? Where do we hear that? John 18, 38, Pontius Pilate asked that. What is truth? For us to understand what truth is, we have to, again, understand that the, what the Bible says is true is true. What the Bible says is wrong is wrong. What the Bible says is right is right. The account of the life of Christ, everything he said, the fact that it's true, that we have to have this, the Bible has to be proven in our hearts to be reliable for us to accept these truths. So why would we have this discussion about the reliability? Have other people questioned it? Are you clicking that for me, David? I kind of figured you were. It wasn't working for me. Let's look at some other contemporary re researchers that have challenged that very thing. Josh McDowell, have you ever heard of this guy? Yes. I've seen him in Fishnet in Front Royal a couple of times. What was the deal with Josh McDowell? Josh McDowell, he was a law student. And, and he, was, he went to law school, and, and while he was there, he, he was kind of a, alone, so he hooked up with a, a small group of people who, guess what, happened to be Christians, even though he was atheist. He, 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 they, they accepted him, they, 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 he liked them, so he kind of posed the question, well, how do you know that it's true? Can you prove it? Well, their response to him is, can you disprove it? So, so what did Josh McDowell do? He took all the, the, the rules of law and evidence and, and all of these things, and he pushed the Bible and extra biblical sources and the question, the reliability of the Bible. And guess what his conclusion was? This is an atheist who didn't even believe in God, who didn't believe the Bible was true. But when he put the Bible to its paces, what did he determine? It's real. It's reliable. Guess what? He's one of the, the, the leading apologists defenders of the faith when it comes to the evidence of Jesus Christ and the truth of the Bible that's out there today. How about Lee Strobel? Ever heard of that guy? Read a book called The Case for Christ. His wife became a Christian. He was an atheist. He wanted to, he was a, 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 a journalist, a, a, a journalist who, who, who did research and dug into things. 
And he wanted to kind of disprove this Jesus thing because he was finding his wife's faith annoying, basically. You know, that, he, that, that she was going down to this crazy Jesus path and, and, and was taking her kids down this crazy Jesus path. So he set out to disprove Jesus. And guess what he found out? It's true. He went and in fact discovered very minor details that pointed to the truth of the Bible that you wouldn't normally think of. It was his study that I've talked about often when I talk about the crucifixion of Christ. You know, when they stabbed him with the, with the spike or the spear and blood and water flowed, it was his research when he dug into and talked to a doctor that realized that's how we know Jesus died basically of asphyxi- asphyxiation, of a lack of oxygen, because when you die of asphyxiation, blood and water, it, it, it collects in the pericardium around your heart. So when they shoved that thing up into him, into his heart, that, that, that blood and that water flowed. The people, when they wrote that down, I assure you, did not understand that, that, that the pericardium stored blood and water around it when you, when you asphyxiate yourself to death or asphyxiate to death. You know, so there was evidence pointing to the reliability, the account of the death of Christ that even the writers, I'm sure, didn't understand. But, but Lee Strobel, through all the, and this is just one point of multiple ones. But, but the point I'm trying to make here is when you put the Bible to the test and you truly dig into it, you find that it is reliable. It is true. Here's one of my favorite, J. Warner Wallace. You probably haven't heard of this guy. He wrote a book called Cold Case Christianity. What this guy was, is he was a cold case detective who, again, did not believe in Jesus. So he took, and I'll, I'll refer to him again here in a little bit later, but he took the principles of science and in investigations and looked at the Gospels, applying what he knows. He solved murders. He was a homicide investigator, a cold case investigator, he would solve old crimes nobody else could based on what he learned about eyewitness accounts of things that have happened. And when he studied especially the Gospels and the book of Mark, he realized this is, these are true accounts. These are true eyewitness statements based on everything I've learned. He came to faith through his study of the Word of God. He didn't believe it. When he put it to its paces, he found that it's true. It's reliable. So these are guys, all three of these guys are still alive. They're still, they're, they're, they're all apologists of the faith, defenders of the faith. And, and they do it in a very intellectual way. It's not just, it doesn't require, these men prove that to believe in the word of God, it doesn't require blind faith. It's not, you just had to accept it just because you were told to. It can be proven in an evidentiary way. We don't have to just say, well, it's true just because the Bible says it's true. When you put it to the paces, it's reliable. It stands the test of evidence. It stands the evidence of physical evidence. When you put it against the rules that we look at when we look at eyewitness accounts, it passes the test. It checks all the marks. It dots the I's. It crosses the T's. And I didn't have time to even begin to talk about this in this sermon, but archaeological digs. They are digging up stuff all the time. That, 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 that when we look back at it, it's like, well, the Bible talked about this. You know, history hadn't talked about it. You know, we didn't believe that you know, this really happened because it was just in the Bible. Well, archaeological digs keep digging up stuff to say, hey, that's the way the Bible says it was. One of the most interesting ones I've read in recent history was the site of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, when they started to peel the layers back, they found that the rocks were actually melted in those areas. <laughs> You want to talk about fire and brimstone and heat and fire that destroyed the city. It melted the rocks around it. They they found that. They've proven that. You know, that's that's, that's some wild stuff. The Bible is reliable. It can be proved scientifically. Can you go to the next one, please? Is the Bible reliable? A good starting point that we're going to look at is probably going to be the majority of our focus for today. It's going to be in the Gospels. What does it take? What did it take to get a Bible, a book canonized in the New Testament? Actually, the rules of canonization. What do I mean by that? What does it take to get a book 
into the Bible. The rules for the Old Testament was a little bit different than the rules from the New Testament. To be in the New Testament, you had to have been written. The book had to have been written either by an apostle or someone directly related to an apostle. So every single one of the books in the New Testament was either written by an apostle or somebody directly related to the uh, an apostle. This relation thing, an example we see in this is the book of Mark. We're going to talk about him here shortly. Or even Hebrews. You know, many scholars believe Barnabas wrote Hebrews. We're not 100% sure who wrote Hebrews. But the, 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 the fathers of the faith, the early fathers of the faith, who had access to more information, believed that the, the author of Hebrews had a direct connection with an apostle. So it's important to understand that if it's in your New Testament, somebody can testify to the fact that it was written by somebody who was either there or somebody who was directly related to it. Why is that important? His primary sources. What is a primary source? And again, we're talking history now. In history, there are different types of sources. There, there's primary sources, secondary sources, and triatory sources. Primary sources are the absolute most reliable. What does it take to be considered a primary source? You either had to, when you were the writer, either had to have been there, it had to involve them, or they had to have been in a position that what they heard was from somebody who was there or saw what they saw. You notice how it kind of fits the rules that we've made for the New Testament? Primary historical sources and how you get canonized in the New Testament, it's the same rules. You either had to be there or you had to be really close to somebody who was. Primary historical sources are considered very, very reliable. Even by the, 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 the world of, of, of history and science, primary sources and the New Testament is a primary source. The book of Mark. We're going to spend some time in the book of Mark. I've talked about this, I've talked about this very shortly in different times. And I've made references to something I'm going to talk about in more detail here. First of all, I believe the book of Mark was the first book, first of the Gospels actually written. And I'll explain why and why it's important. You know, when they were originally putting it together, they, they, they thought Matthew was. But here's the thing with Mark. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They call them the synoptics. What the synoptics mean? Seen in. Basically, Matthew, Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are seen within each other. John was a little bit different. We'll talk about that too, though. But here's something: if you look very deep in a very detail-oriented way at the book of Mark, almost the entire book of Mark is found in the book of Matthew. Almost the entire book. Almost the entire book of Mark is found in the book of Luke. So the, what, what that tells us is, is that Mark was probably written first. And that Luke and Matthew were kind of adding to their, their, their take on what they saw. So, so Mark, in my opinion, mind you, this has fallen among scholars. So if you don't agree with it, Mark being the first one written, that's okay. But I believe it was, and this is why. My opinion is the book of Mark is the eyewitness account of the life of Christ through the eyes of Peter. And I'm going to explain this. Why do I think this way? First of all, if you can advance it there, who is Mark? There we go. Who is Mark? And how would he have had the intimate details contained in the gospel? Because this is very, very important. Again, for us to have a gospel according to Mark... We have to know what was Mark's connection to the information. You know, is, is, this, is this just something he was hearing? Is this something? Because not everybody realizes, they would if they really looked at it, two of the Gospels were written by, two of the four Gospels were written by people who were not apostles. The Gospel according to Mark, Mark was not an apostle. So, his information to be canonized would have had to either come, would have had to come directly from an apostle. Well, where do we first see Mark mentioned in the Bible? It's in Acts 12, 12. We see the story in Acts 12, Peter's miraculous, miraculous escape from jail. You know, Herod had just, he just had, had uh, James, the brother of, of John, put to death by the sword. And now, guess what? Peter's number was up. It was going to be him next. Well, angels came, freed him. So where does he go? So Peter escapes. He runs, and we see in Acts 12, 12, 
When it, when it had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. So when Peter escapes the grips of death from Herod at that time, where is the first place he runs to? Mark's house. So we see a connection here now. We see a connection between Peter and Mark. Why is this important again? Because if Peter was, if this is an account of Peter's viewing of what he saw, that makes him a primary source. That makes him there. That places him. What, what, what Peter says is very, very important. Let's get to the next slide. It says this. Now we want to look a little bit more into this John guy. I mean, this, yeah, this John Mark guy. Acts 13.5 says this, when they arrived in Salamis, they, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogue. So we're talking about Paul and, and, and Barnabas. John was with them as their helper. So the first time we see John Mark actually doing work in the ministry, it is not during the life of Christ. I'm not saying that he didn't see things during the life of Christ, but the first time we see him working in ministry is actually with Paul and Barnabas. So the next time we really see him is, is after the, 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 the Council of Jerusalem. Barnabas wanted to take John, this is Acts 15, 37 through 38. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with him. But Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Palmalia and, and had not continued with them in their work. So we, what do we see about John Mark here? He goes on the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. And what's he do? He leaves them. Why did, you know, many scholars think he got homesick. He was probably a young guy. He got homesick. That's not in the Bible, but that's, that's, a, that's a plausible explanation. But what we do know from the Bible is that he left Paul and Barnabas. Now, if you look at, and Paul and Barnabas were doing some pretty cool stuff. Do you think that the same guy who would ditch Paul and Barnabas would have stuck with Jesus when he was walking around and being confronted by anybody and their brother and they were wanting to kill him in every turn? My guess is he probably wouldn't. So, so what that tells me is the guy that didn't even want to hang with Paul and Barnabas because he wanted to go home probably was not walking with Christ. So where was his source? Where was he getting this information? If you could advance this. So let's continue to make this connection. When Mark left Paul and Barnabas, where did he go? He went home to Jerusalem. Well, where was Peter? He was in Jerusalem. Peter sought refuge at Mark's mother's home. We saw that. Now, when we look at the Jerusalem council, that we look at in the book of Acts, Peter was present. We see Peter was present during the Jerusalem council. He was in close proximity to Peter at all this time. It was after this council where the, there was the big argument between Paul and Barnabas about whether or not they should take Mark again. You know, Peter's like, he's not reliable. We're not taking him. And Barnabas, Barnabas like, no. In fact, we see in, in, in Colossians that, that John Mark was actually Barnabas' cousin. So, so Barnabas is like, okay, what, what, we want to take him. And he's like, no, no, no. So you want to know what Paul and Barnabas actually split ways. They parted ways over this fight over John Mark. So John Mark is not this guy that you would see that would, would, would probably have this firsthand knowledge himself of the things that he was testifying about in the gospel according to Mark. So where did he get it from? Because of his proximity to Peter and because of the fact that we see them in the same places in the same time, it was probably the account of Peter. Let's go to the next slide. Here's another reason I believe this. Matthew 16, 18. This is what Jesus says to Simon, Simon Peter. And I tell you that you are Peter. What's Peter mean? It's a rock. Paul, Paul refers to him in Caiaphas. That's, that's, a, that's another word for rock. Jesus said, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, would the man that Jesus said is the starting point of my church, do you think he wouldn't have possibly put it out there, his account of, of the life of Christ? So why wouldn't, he have, why wouldn't he have just put his name to it? What would we know about Peter? Actually, before I get to Peter, let's look at, this is where we want to come back to J. Warner Wallace. J. Warner Wallace, before he was a believer, the first time he read the book of Mark, 
applying the rules of science when it comes to understanding eyewitness statements, not knowing anything about the Bible, read the book of Mark and says in the, his book, Cold Case Christianity, it was glaringly apparent to me that this is the eyewitness statement of Peter. Scholars, many of them hold to the fact that the book of Mark is the eyewitness account of Peter. It's not just me. This isn't some crazy thing that I've bounced off the wall and said, hey, this kind of makes sense. The evidence points that direction. So it's important to understand that what you're reading in the book of Mark is the most likely and most explainable thing of being the guy who was the, was the rock that Jesus built his church on. The guy, Jesus had this inner circle. He had his 12, but he had this inner circle. He had three that he was very, very close to. They went together everywhere. Even when Jesus went off to pray, guess who was one of them? Peter. So Peter would have had privileged access to like when Jesus was at Gethsemane praying to the Father. He would have been there for these intimate details. So it makes absolute sense that when Mark was writing about these intimate details, that it was Peter. So this is what we believe, if this is the writings of Peter, can we believe it? He was there. He was absolutely there. It's something that we can, we can lay down, we can put the, our money on the, on the line, the whole bank, the fact that Peter was there and he had the knowledge of what we saw in the book of Mark. But let's look at Matthew for a second in the next slide. Oop, we already did it. Matthew was one of the apostles. So Matthew was there for all of the things that he was talking about. He's writing his own account of what he saw, what, what Jesus did. And here's where some of the people get kind of hung up. You know, well, the, you know, the, the book of Mark and the, and the book of, the book of uh, Matthew, some of the chronology is kind of, it's kind of messed up. They're not, they're not exactly in the same order. Well, there's a reason for that. I consider, and I don't know if Eric would agree with me, I consider the book of Matthew probably the most Jewish of the four. Why is that? In my opinion, and it, it, it's, it's really clear that Matthew was trying to lay out the life of Christ to align him with the life of Moses. The life of Moses is broken down in the three sections in Scripture. Well, the book of Matthew lays out the life of Christ in three parallel sections with Moses. Well, why would he do that? It's because he's trying to present Jesus as being what we call the new Moses. Where, where do we get this from? Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 16. This is Moses speaking. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me and among you from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb. On the day of the assembly, when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord and God, nor see his great fires anymore, or we will die. Continued on in verse 17 and 19 through 19. The Lord said to them, what, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you. He's talking to Moses. A prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I commanded him. What does Jesus say about the stuff that he tells us? It comes straight from the Father. But the Father has told me, but the Father has revealed to me. That's, where I'm, that's what I'm sharing with you. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. Now let's skip forward to Acts 3, 22 through 23. I know I'm throwing a lot of stuff at you, and this might, might, many of you might be like, this isn't very interesting. But it's important for you to understand why we know this is reliable. Acts, this is back to Luke's writings. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. So, so Luke is, is now referencing back to Deuteronomy. Who is this guy that's like Moses but greater than Moses? It's Jesus. Matthew is really trying really, really hard, and he does a very good job. And this is why I consider it the most Jewish, because it's, 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 it's screaming to the Jewish people, this is the guy like Moses who's greater than Moses. He even tries to parallel the, their lives to the point where some scholars, they even question, you know, does, 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 you know, does Matthew really, I think he's, he's, he's misinterpreting because 
Matthew brings out the scripture that says, Out of Egypt I call my son. In the original context, he was absolutely talking about Moses. So when, when Matthew says that, many scholars are like, well, he just didn't understand. That's not Jesus. But did he call Jesus out of Egypt? When, 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 when Jesus, there was an attempt at Jesus' life, when he was a baby, where did they run to? Egypt. They sent, they, God sent an angel to Joseph and said, come on back, to, to, you know, the, the, the bad guy's dead, come on back to Nazareth. So he called Jesus out of Egypt as well. Well, here's my issue too. I'm just showing too that, that Matthew is trying to make this parallel. Any way that an apostle interprets scripture, I don't question. Why is that? Because I had some really high-level professors when I was going through college, especially when I was working on my doctorate. Let me tell you what, none of them te taught the teachings of Jesus. <laughs> Matthew had absolute access for close to three years to Jesus himself. The things that he, the way he interprets Scripture is, is from his learning from Messiah. So Matthew doesn't get it wrong. When we question Matthew, we're getting it wrong. Are we on the same page here? Yes? Amen? Go away? All right, let's look, let's look at Luke. Colossians 4. This is the first time we really see exactly who Luke is. Was Luke an apostle? No, he was not. Who was Luke? Colossians 4.14, Paul calls him our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. So we know Luke is a physician. And, and so why in the world does Luke, why, do we, why does he even have a gospel? He was not an apostle. Let's look at Luke 1, 1 through 4. On the next slide, let's look at Luke 1, 1 through 4. <laughs> many have undertaken, this is Luke speaking, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully, with this in mind, since I myself, Luke, have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, the most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that have been taught. So who was Luke? Luke was a friend of Paul, who is Theophilus? We have no idea. Is Theophilus a Hebrew name? It absolutely is not. It's, it's, it's most likely a Greek name. So this is why many people believe the book of Luke was intended for a Gentile audience. He's right, he's, Luke has taken an eyewitness account. He is carefully investigated. And this is an eyewitness account of, of, of the investigation that he has made. And he's sharing it with this person named Theophilus. How do we, so why, what do we see in the book of Luke that we don't see anywhere else? We, we see very intimate details of the birth of Christ. Where would he have gotten that from? He's investigating. Where would he have gotten that from? Probably Mary. <laughs> you know, so, so Luke is doing this careful investigation. Does he keep doing it? Let's look at Acts 1, 1 through 2. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about that Jesus began, what Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions to the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So again, he's writing to Theophilus. You know, so, so Luke is, even the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, was this, 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 this investigation of, of eyewitness accounts. And we do know through pronouns that Luke was present during some of the things in, in the book of Acts. Sometimes he talks about them. Sometimes he talks about us. You know, so some of the things were an eyewitness. Why is all this so important? Why is he up there yammering about this stuff? It's so important because we need to know that this isn't just stuff that people made up. This isn't just stuff they grabbed from the air. This isn't legend. This isn't any of these other things. This is written by people who were there. Or if they weren't there, they did careful investigations, and it was consistent with what the others were saying. The book of John. We're going to talk very shortly about this. John was a disciple. He was one of the apostles. He was in Jesus' inner circle. 
and arguably probably the apostle with the most intimate relationship with Jesus. In fact, he liked, he liked to call himself the, Je- or the apostle or the disciple that Jesus loved. John was written much later, but this is why it's different. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are historical. John focuses on the relationship side, but he's still in his account of the, his relationship with Christ. And we say, where do we catch the story of Nicodemus? My brother Eric talked about Nicodemus in Sunday school. Where do we catch this account of Nicodemus? It's in the, it's in the book of John. So he's, he's now sharing the fact that Jesus is a relational God. Why was this important? It was most likely written after the destruction of the temple. You know, the, 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 the Jews and the, 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 the Christian believers who were also Jews, they were worshiping together in the temple. The temple was destroyed, and now they're like, oh, what are we going to do? We don't have a temple. What are we going to do? So John is basically saying, it's the relationship. You don't need a place. You are the place. Jesus wants that relationship with you. So the whole, the whole feel of what John was trying to get at was different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But it still, it does not conflict. He was there. He was with Jesus through thick and thin. Do you realize that, that John is the only apostle that did not abandon Christ at the cross? He's the only disciple. What is a disciple? A follower, a student, you know, someone who follows. He was the only apostle, someone who goes out and starts and spreads the word. You know, he, was, he was the only one of these folks who was at the foot of the cross. So what John has to say, I find that pretty important. Primary sources, going back to that. The upper room, what happened after Jesus was murdered? That's what he was. We like to say crucified. He was murdered. After Jesus was murdered, what did, what did the apostles do? The, the 11 that was left. They kind of freaked out and they locked themselves in the upper room. They were the upper room scaredy cats. And what are we going to do? What would have turned these folks into the upper room scaredy cats to being the guys who every single one of them except for John was put to death for the very words that they were speaking. What would have caused them to do that? What would have caused James, the half-brother of Jesus, at one point trying to go take Jesus, thinking he's lost his mind, to in the book of James refers to him as the Lord? What would cause these changes? The fact that they saw a risen Lord. They were afraid. Why were they no longer afraid? Because Jesus is alive. It's not, it's not a fairy tale. It's not legend. Jesus is alive. He was dead, buried. Three days later, rose again, and he is still alive, but now sits at the right hand of the Father, and he is our, he is our petitioner and our advocate to the Father. It's reliable because they would not have stuck with the story if it was just the story. They had to have been changed by the words that they were writing. The differences in the Gospels, they actually point to the, the authenticity of their words as opposed to contradiction. So we, see the, uh, we see the writers with slightly different ways of wording things. In my investigations as a cop, when I question, let's say we got four Gospels, let's say four writers. If I question four people independently and they give me the identical story, what does that tell me? They got together and they made it up. True story. Because nobody, nobody tells the same story identically. If I went and, and, and told a short story to everybody in these first, couple, these first couple rows by themselves and then brought them back in and they told the story, there's going to be differences. It doesn't mean that, that, that it's not true. 
Their, their memory of things might be slightly different. Where they were, position makes difference. What you see and what you see is different because of your vantage point. So if your stories are slightly different, they're not contradictions, they're a difference in what you saw. You see what I'm saying here? So the things that people like to call contradictions actually point to the reliability of what it has to say. What's kind of cool about the fact that those differences are still there? If I wanted to clean up the Bible to try to make something that wasn't true and try to clean it up so I could sell it to you, I would fix those, cha- those differences. I would go back and I would change those stories. But the fact that there's slight differences shows that this is what they said. This is what they saw. This is their, their, their memory of it. It makes it real. This is, their this is their accountability to what they saw. The Bible is absolutely reliable. The Gospels are absolutely reliable. Now let's just look very shortly at a couple other quick things. I'll land this plane because I know there's probably some of you thinking, oh God, get me out of here, please. When you throw this type of information out there, trust me, I understand that some people are just going to be like, oh, just get me out of this room, please. But it's important. I don't want you to accept the Bible just because you have blindly accepted something that somebody told you you should believe. I don't want you to have a faith in Christ that is based on on, on just a story that's baseless. I want you to have a faith that is real because you understand that the account of the life of Christ and throughout the entire Bible is real. It's not a fake. The Dead Sea Scrolls. Oh my goodness. This was a gift from heaven. Why? Who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls? The Ensigns. I've talked about these folks in the past. Who were the Ensigns? There were four, four major groups in, in the Jewish circles in the first century going in and out. The Pharisees, remember those guys? The Sadducees, the Zealots, and the Ensigns. Who were the Ensigns? The Ensigns was a group of people who considered themselves like Puritans. They were the purists. In fact, they separated themselves from the other Jewish believers, and they, 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 they even relocated themselves. And they wrote what we, what we now call, what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. Why, why, did we, why do we call them the Dead Sea Scrolls? We found them in the caves of Cameron that's along the shore of the Dead Sea. That's where we found them. There's something really interesting here. We have found scrolls. We found the first one around 1947, the last one that we found in 1956. We have found a scroll for every single book in their Old Testament except the book of Esther. Every single one. These guys were separatists. They weren't weren't trying to be like everybody else. They were trying to be the purists. And yet they still held to the exact same books that we did. Well, why, why, why not Esther? Well, the reality is, is Esther might still be out there. <laughs> we might not just have found it in, in the caves yet. It may have disintegrated. It may, who knows? But what's important is this group that was completely separate from their contemporary Jewish people wrote down the exact same Old Testament that you have. The wording. This is where it gets crazy. The implications. When you first got the Dead Sea Scrolls, you're like, you know, this could really prove or disprove the Old Testament as we know it. If the wording is the same, it means that the Old Testament that we've been reading for centuries is probably reliable. If it's different, then something has happened. We've dropped the ball somewhere. Want to, know the, want to know what's different about the wording between the, old, or the Dead Sea Scrolls and your Old Testament? Practically nothing. They were almost identical. Grasp the implication of that. The Dead Sea Scrolls 
who were written by a group of separatists who believed they were the, the, the purest of the Jews, wrote the identical book that's in your, practically in, it's in your, your hands, almost verbatim. Even in the book of John, scholars do these stupid things. They're always arguing about, did this person write this book? Did that person write that book? Did this person do this? Did that person do that? The book of John was, was really one of the reasons that some scholars questioned this authenticity is because some of the wording in the book of John in the original language was different you know, from the way the others are written. So they thought, well, this was written much, much later. This, was, this had to have been much, much later because you know, they didn't talk that way back then. Guess what? They found wording the exact same character in nature in the Dead Sea Scrolls that the, that the Apostle John used, which validated that they were hearing the same stuff that John was hearing and seeing. So you see how this completely separate thing, the Dead Sea Scrolls, has validated that Bible that's in your hand. It has validated that John wrote the book of John. Not that we even needed that. You know, Polycarp, who was a, a disciple of, of, of one of John's disciples, one of his followers, had said that, that the book of John was written by none other than the apostle who leaned against the breast of Christ. There's, there's a secondary source. It's reliable. Next slide, please. Here's something that's very interesting. If you want to see a book that talks about this, it's called Greek for Everyone by uh, Chadwick Thornhill. He was one of my professors. Great book. If you want to get into Greek and you want to get into some of the nitty-gritty of the Bible, Greek for Everyone. But in his book, he talks about this, and this is me paraphrasing what he said. There are significantly more transcripts of the Bible than any other ancient book. You know, there are many, many more genuine transcripts of the Bible than the Koran, which was written centuries later. There's more of them. They were more accurate between each other. Here's something that's really important to catch, too. In the New Testament, in the Greek, when you start talking about people arguing about what things mean and what things don't mean, there's only a couple of hundred words I believe it's 400 and something. Don't, don't, don't quote me to that, but I believe it's 400 and something words in the Greek New Testament that scholars kind of question, well, did it mean this or that? 400 words, does that sound like a lot? It's less than the front of one page in the New Testament. Here's something that's also important about that. None of those words that they dispute have anything to do with doctrinal issues. So the New Testament that we have, the important issues aren't even disputed among people who like to dispute everything. <laughs> it's reliable. There's one last thing that I really want to talk about very shortly. What is proof of the reliability of the Bible? You. Let me tell you a little 30-second clip of my story. When I came to know the Lord in 1987, I didn't feel the need for the Lord. I didn't ask, I didn't ask for a change in life. I didn't ask for any of these things. But the Holy Spirit revealed to my heart that I was a broken person. It's not, I, didn't come, I didn't come to that conclusion myself. I didn't think I was. I was a... I was a young guy that was, you know, like I was an athlete. I thought the world by the tail. I mean, I was just, I, was just I, I didn't feel the need. But something happened to me that once my brokenness was revealed, that when I asked Jesus into my heart, there was a change made in me that I didn't ask for. I asked for a relationship with Christ, the change he did. So if Jesus were dead, if God was a farce, those changes would not have happened in my life because I didn't ask for him. I just asked for a relationship with Jesus, and I asked to be forgiven for all the stupid stuff I do. That's all I asked for. I didn't ask for the change. God made the change. He's real. 
How do I know he's real? Because I have a very reliable Bible that tells me about his character and his will and what's right and what's wrong. It's real, and that's what's made the change. God has changed me through the Holy Spirit, through his words, in that Bible. It is reliable. I don't normally do anything like this. This isn't a, are you a saved or not saved question. But if after reading the Bible and studying the Word of God, if it has changed you in some way, raise your hand. Look around, people. Almost everybody here. If it wasn't everybody. How can a book change all their lives if it's just a story? It's not. First book, the first chapter of the book of John. John calls Jesus the Word. Jesus is the Word. The Bible is reliable because it is a direct connection to Jesus himself. It is who he is. It is what he's about. It's what he stands for. What did Jesus stand for? Jesus stood for exalting the Father above all else thing, all other things. Jesus stood for standing up for the underdog. Jesus stood up for being a friend of a sinner when nobody else wanted to be their friend. He was, he was all about engaging and loving on people that nobody else wanted to love on. The Word of God is Jesus. It's what He's all about. It's who He is. And we have a reliable account. And this last, this very last slide, I'm only scratching, only scratching the surface. You know, it's 1138. If you want to be here to 1138 tomorrow, we can still talk about this stuff. <laughs> Sanford might be a little upset. Might get a few snoozers. We can, go out, we can call for pizza. Let's call Domino's. Let's do it. But it's only scratching the surface. You can trust the Word of God. You can trust the Word of God that's in your hand. It is a reliable account of who God is. It's a reliable account of what Jesus thinks and feels. It is a reliable account about salvation history. God's plan through the entire Old Testament pointing to Jesus, who is going to be our Savior, who is our Savior. It's a reliable account of why everything that's happened, that happens. It's reliable. You can trust it. You can trust it. Again, I would, I would put it all in line with the fact that you can trust it. Let us pray.